Welcome to STEAM Powered, where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. My guest today is Dr. Lucy Commander. Lucy is a consultant restoration cedarcologist who is passionate about Australian native flora and has worked with the mine industry on mine site restoration. She is currently the project manager of the update of the Flora Bank Guidelines for Native Seed Collection and Use with the Australian Network for Plant Conservation. Join us as we talk about her love of music, gardening, and her work with plant translocation and restoration seed ecology. Welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for um, the invite. Yeah, so I feel almost like we need to have two separate sessions, one to talk about your translocation guidelines and one to talk about all the stuff with the seed collection and use. There's just so much to cover. Um, but yeah, uh, just a bit of background for everyone else. Uh, we were in the same year group in high school and we even did choir together for a very short stint for me. Um, but you just kept that going after high school. How big of a part is being a vocalist to, you know, your life in general? Um, yeah, I just really love to sing, I guess. Um, so after high school, I went and lived in London for a year. And so I didn't, I didn't sing. I wasn't in a choir for a year and stopped playing the violin and the viola. Um, and I just, yeah, I just really missed singing. So as soon as I came back to Perth, um, I joined a choir with one of our other high school friends. Um, and yeah, I've just been, yeah, basically singing. I think um, I first started singing in a choir when I was in year five um, and I've just, yeah, loved it ever since. So it's just kind of, um, for me, it's just a, it's relaxation and mindfulness, but it's also really energising and I love learning new things and listening to beautiful music and also like being in a choir. I like making music with people as well. I'm not really that interested in just doing it by myself. So yeah. I really like being part of a, a bigger group and also mm. part of a community as well. Um, and then I'm in a jazz band now as well. So that's like really different to choral singing. I know it's really bad at the beginning, but, um, yeah, I've been doing it for a while, so I'm getting better, I think. <laughs> oh yeah. That's amazing. So you're doing both the choral and the jazz still at the same time. Um, I haven't been singing in the choir for a while since I had my second child. It's been a bit difficult for both me and my husband to get to choir practice at the same time. So what yeah. I do now is sing, um, just at various events, um, associated with the Royal School of Church Music, the WA branch. So I'm secretary for that at the moment. And so I sing at various events that they have through the year. So that's a bit yeah. easier to like go to a gospel music workshop, for example. And mm -hmm. so I can just sort of still be part of the community, um, but just attend various events rather than a weekly rehearsal commitment because my husband's still in the choir. So, oh, um, nice. yeah. That's brilliant. Mm. And like just recently you took part in the virtual choir for Eric Whitaker's project too. Yeah, that's right. So Eric Whitaker um, wrote a composition specially for the isolation times. Um, <laughs> and so for those who don't know, he's an American composer um, and he just composes the most beautiful music. It's um, uh, it's joyful. It's relaxing. It's like makes you cry. Um, yeah, I think he's one of my favourite contemporary composers. We did a lot of his works um, in the choir that I have sung in. So when I found out about this, I was like, oh, I'm going to try and try and learn the music um, and record myself. And the recording sounded terrible, but I think there's so many thousand, <laughs> there's so many thousand people that it doesn't really matter. And it was just really, um, I was just really fun to learn the music and, um, you know, be part of a choir with a conductor composer who lives in America that I would just never have the opportunity to do otherwise. 
That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so timely as well, because I, I looked up the virtual choir and he's been doing this for about a decade now, just every yeah, every few years right. putting out one of those ones. That's right. And I think um, he sort of said that after the last one that they did that was really big, they were like, oh, there's not really a scope to do anymore. And then, of course, this came about and all choirs shut. And I was like, well, obviously, you know, it's time to do another one. So that's cool. Yeah, it was great. That's great. So there's no release date yet for when that's going to be out because you only just recorded that last weekend. No, right? I really just recorded it. No, I don't know. I think the production team will have to work pretty hard on uh, putting it all together. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. So there were, only, there were about 5,500 altos. Was it? Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's nice. right. So being a cast of millions, so yeah, <laughs> it'll be a while yet. Lots <laughs> that's of right. Cool. And so we might come back to that later. So since you know leaving school, doing uh, your overseas stint in London, you've now become a consultant ecologist. So how do you become a consultant ecologist? I guess after I came back from London, um, so I got into science at EWA and deferred that. Um, mm -hmm. And then I changed my preferences and enrolled in a Bachelor of Science of Horticulture and Viticulture because um, I wanted to do something a bit more specialist than sort of just science. I, I couldn't really see, um, yeah, I guess where that would take me. And I was really interested in plants. So I thought, well, I'm interested in plants. I should study plants. So I did. Um, so I did four years at UWA because it included a year of honours. Um, mm -hmm. And then after that, I got a job in uh, for Forest Products Commission working in their research nursery. So I did that for a few months and that was really fun. Um, and then I got a job at Kings Park working as a research assistant in the seed laboratory. So for my honours project at UWA, I had worked on seed germination. And so um, I sort of had a few of the skills that, and a little bit of the background um, that I needed to do a research assistant job in seed biology at Kings Park. Mm -hmm. um, so Kings Park does research on um, native West Australian species, um, horticulture and rehabilitation, um, general sort of restoration. So uh, yeah, that was great. I did that for a year and then I kind of fell into a PhD program. Um, <laughs> as you do. Um, and so my PhD was on um, mine site restoration and also seed biology. So continuing on from what I'd done for my honours and all yeah. the techniques that they taught me at Kings Park when I was a research assistant. Um, and then after that, I uh, was working, doing contract research for mining companies, doing this sort of similar sorts of things, restoration ecology and seed biology. Um, and I did that um, for about eight years or so. Um, so yeah, it was just sort of um, a bit of a progression, really. I don't, yeah. um, um, I certainly didn't have a career mapped out, um, just sort of taking every step as it comes and um, following up on new and interesting opportunities. Um, so that's kind of how I came to be here. And I guess because it's WA, you're going to have a lot of opportunities for, you know, all the mine, mine site restoration stuff because there's yeah, so much of it going on. You know, WA is so interesting. It's such an interesting place to work in with plants. And I mean, I know a lot of people who, um, do PhDs, you know, travel all over the world um, to, to work. Um, and I certainly have gone all over the world to go to conferences and collaborate with people. But, I mean, our flora is just amazing. And we've got so many different ecosystems, you know, from the kind of mountains in the southwest to sand plain flora to coastal vegetation. We've got river vegetation and riparian zones. Um, and then also We've got the whole desert, so I've worked a lot in the desert, in the arid zone, and then we've also yeah. got the tropics up in the Kimberley. So, you know, it's just so interesting to be able to work in all these different ecosystems and work mm. on different plants. So, mm. 
yeah, I've been super lucky to have jobs that have taken me around WA to visit some really interesting and, and different field sites. Um, and, yeah, people come from all over the world to come and look at WA flora. So, um, yeah, we're pretty lucky that to be able to work on it here. That's pretty brilliant. So leading on from that, <clears throat> with your work in the Australian Network for Plant Conservation, you've helped to edit the last set of... The translocation guidelines, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I started working for the Australian Network for Plant Conservation a couple of years ago, and they are an organisation um, that really promotes plant conservation in Australia, um, and they release various... Uh, publications. So one of them is the guidelines for plant translocation in Australia and that um, has had two editions so far but the last edition um, was produced some time ago and so there's been a lot of research since then and um, so it was great to be able to get some funding to do the update for that. So um, I was project manager and lead editor for that and so basically the translocation guidelines is a step-by-step -step guide to um, translocation of threatened plants in Australia. And translocation basically means just putting plants from one place into another. So they might be directly transplanted. So you might dig them up in an area that's going to have a road or a mine site and then replant them somewhere else um, where they're not going to be disturbed. Or it might involve some sort of ex situ propagation or ex situ conservation. So you might collect the seeds in one location, um, put them in a seed bank um, and then propagate them in the nursery um, and then plant them out in either the same location. So you might be doing like a population augmentation where you're adding more individuals yeah. into a small population, um, or you might be uh, making a new population um, in an area that's suitable, uh, or you might be reinstating them into an area that used to have them, but they've become locally extinct. So, um, so that's what the translocation guidelines is focusing on, um, stepping people through all the processes you need from collecting the germplasm, so that's the seeds or the cutting material, um, mm -hmm. right through from propagation um, into planning the site prep and doing the implementation and then also doing the monitoring um, and reporting, as well as making sure that you have sort of Indigenous engagement and community involvement and also getting the right licences and things like that. So. It's a really comprehensive set of guidelines for anybody who's working on basically threatened, um, saving threatened species from extinction. That's, this just covers so much ground there. So yeah. how, <laughs> when someone starts a project, like say they're trying to build a new road, how do they go about assessing whether they're going to be ending up having to remove threatened species? Like who do they contact and how do they figure out what needs to be moved? Well, I guess usually before any sort of land clearing there's some sort of process to make an assessment to see um, what's in the vegetation and determine whether there are any threatened species. Um, I haven't been involved in a lot of clearing permits but um, I think that that is the case um, and so then they might make an assessment as to um, if there are threatened species and they do get approval to clear um, what they're going to do with the threatened species if they're going to remove the plants as individuals or whether they're going to you know take germplasm that is take cuttings or um, collect seed from them um, so that the genetic material from that population um, can be stored and, and transplanted. Um, so, do, so I guess, yeah, that would be sort of the first step is to do an assessment, site assessment. Okay. So do they work with um, like national organisations or are they just small groups who will, who will consult on these things? It's really 
Yeah, diverse, the people who are involved in threatened species translocation. Um, so there are government organisations like in WA, um, yeah, there's a, a conservation agency. So each state has got a conservation agency that mm -hmm. looks after threatened species. Um, and there are also NGOs that either own land and might do translocations on their own land. Um, Australian Network for Plants Conservation um, is involved through mostly through training and providing workshops and information mm -hmm. dissemination um, and networking. Um, there's also scientific organisations like so universities, for example, are doing a lot of research on threatened species and they might be threatened species ecologists. So the ecologists are doing a lot of research um, and they're helping the practitioners with better ways of doing translocations. And then, yeah, of course, there are all the practitioners. So they might be community groups, they might be local land care groups, catchment management authorities, uh, there might be local landowners as well, like farmers, mm -hmm. for example, um, who might have translocations on their property. So, yeah, it's a really interesting and diverse mix of people um, that I've come in contact with through the guidelines. Um, and then, of course, there's all there's also the consultants as well and practitioners, people who are doing the on-ground works. So the Flora Bank Sea Guidelines that you're working on now, that's a part of the translocation process. So that focuses specifically on the seed collections and the uh, getting the cuttings and things that you were talking about before? Yeah, that's right. So um, the translocation guidelines were published um, two years ago now. Um, and so the new project that I'm working on is an update of the Florabank guidelines. And the Florabank guidelines are the best practice guidelines for native seed use in restoration. So these guidelines, in fact, encompass um, not just threatened species, but also common species. So mm -hmm. all species in West, in Australia that are being used in um, ecological restoration. So, uh, and yeah, it basically steps through the process of um, seed use. So we start with species selection. So which species do you need for restoration? Um, how do you decide which population to collect from? Um, because if there are multiple populations from a, of a species, you might want to decide if you want to collect from all of them or just one or the local one or, you know, all of those different types of decisions. Um, how to collect the seeds as well, because there's lots of different techniques for seed collection, um, how to dry the seeds, how to process them when you bring them back, um, how to check the quality of seeds as well, because sometimes you make a seed collection and then you find out they're all empty. It's um, a bit frustrating. Um, or um, also how to clean them up as well um, to make sure you're removing all of the sticks and leaves and uh, non-seed material, how to store them so that they stay alive in storage. Because seeds, like even though they look like they are kind of not really doing much, there's actually a lot of stuff going on inside them. Um, yeah, so you've got to make sure that you keep them alive while you store them. So drying and storage is, is really critical. So we've got a um, section on that. Um, and then also how to propagate them. So how to get the seeds to germinate, what to do if they're dormant um, and they don't germinate, um, what you might need to do pretreatments, and then also how to do direct seeding um, and things like that as well. And then we've got some top tips for people who are purchasing seed and people who are selling seed as well. So um, yeah, it's a really good update. Um, the guidelines were firstly written in 1999. So there's so much information that, you know, practitioners, research scientists, um, NGOs and conservation organisations have, you know, really found out about Australian seeds in the last 20 years. So 
we're hoping with this big team of authors that we're going to um, help kind of communicate all of that. So Flora Bank, are they, um, are they actually a national seed bank? I, their site's currently under construction, so it's hard to tell who or what they are. So Flora Bank um, was a consortium between um, a few different organisations, um, but the funding ran out for them some time ago. So they're termed the Flora Bank Guidelines, um, but it's Australian Network for Plant Conservation uh, who is leading this um, new edition of the Flora Bank Guidelines. Um, but we're working with a whole lot of other organisations, so CSIRO and um uh, Greening Australia um, and a whole bunch of other organisations as well across the country to try and update these guidelines. Okay, jumping around a little bit for <laughs> there's so many things to talk about. With the seed collections, do they go to national, like sort of state seed banks? Yeah, or is so it that's still individual groups because it's the really volume that's needed for a lot of the things that's needed for. That's right. There are lots of different seed banks around the country. So um, where I used to work in Kings Park, they have a seed bank there um, and that's used for research purposes and also to propagate species for the gardens. Um, in other seed banks, so seed, commercial seed collectors also might have some sort of seed storage facility and these vary depending on the end use of the seeds and how long you want to store them for. So if you only need to store them for a couple of months because you collect them, you clean them, you dry them and then you're going to on-sell them, um, then they might have quite different storage facilities to seeds that might need to be stored for 10 or more years. Mm -hmm. um, so the conservation seed banks around Australia are in a network and um, a lot of them contribute duplicate collections of their seeds to the Millennium Seed Bank in the UK. And that's an underground seed vault, um, I think kept at minus 18 degrees Celsius. So um, yeah, duplicate collections of Australian plant seeds have gone over there um, for conservation. And the seed banks that participate in this, do they only take care of the Australian flora or do they also do food crop kind of seeds as well? Um, there are also seed banks in Australia that are doing food crops. Um, and also, interestingly, they're starting to get into crop wild relatives as well. So they're looking at seeds and um, of, uh, yeah, wild relatives of, of food crops. So wild relatives of, you know, grains like wheat and things like that. So um, that's quite interesting where there's a bit of a crossover oh, and collaboration yeah. between, yeah, the people who are working on native seeds and the people who are working on agricultural seeds. Um, so that's really interesting as well. So with, say, the bushfires, we learn at school that Australian flora works well with the bushfires, for lack of a better way of explaining it, because they use the heat fires and from that it helps to kickstart their own growing cycle. So how do you assess or determine at what point these natural areas need the assistance and, and intervention? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, the Australian flora, um, some ecosystems are well adapted to fire. So plants have got all sorts of really interesting adaptations that help them um, cope and regenerate with fire. So, um, and some of them, you know, require it, in fact, for their life cycle. Yeah. So some trees are just are able to re-sprout from their buds. They might re-sprout from underground tubers. Um, there are other plants that are stimulated to flower after after bushfires as well, so they they require that that cue um, in order to flower and then set seed. And there's others that germinate um, immediately after fires because the smoke in the fires stimulates seed germination, um, and then they complete their whole life cycle within a few years. And afterwards, once they set seed and the seed lies 
um, in the seed bank waiting for the next fire. So in, in some ecosystems, yeah, fire is um, required for some species life cycle. Uh, and also, yeah, species have really interesting adaptations on, on how they regenerate. But yeah, as you said, some ecosystems aren't resilient um, to fire because either they've been burnt too many times. So what might happen is if um, an ecosystem is burnt every year, for example, um, the species, they don't have enough time to be able to flower and set seeds. And so the seed bank becomes depleted. All the seeds are germinating, but there are no flowers and then consequently no seeds to be able to replace them. Um, maybe particularly young growth might not be resilient and they, you know, they might not re-sprout and things like that. So um, certainly in areas where burns are too frequent, um, then the ecosystem may lose its resilience. And then others where they might be degraded. So for example, if there's been a lot of grazing through perhaps, um, uh, you know, um, sheep or goats or uh, perhaps feral animals, um, then, yeah, there just might not be enough seeds in the seed bank to be able to regenerate. Um, so that's why I guess the first step really is just to do do a survey, do a plant survey to see um, what's there, what's coming back after the fire, um, and then hopefully have an intact reference system that you might be able to compare and say, oh, we would have expected these plants to be here and they're not. Um, so in that case, um, human intervention might be required. Sometimes human intervention might be required maybe just in weed control or maybe fencing to keep stock out, um, and there's no sort of active restoration required. But in other cases, um, yeah, the, the area may be so degraded that you may need to have seed input, and whether that's direct seeding or whether that's planting seedlings that have been grown in a nursery, um, that just really depends on the ecosystem and the species. Right. So for the areas that keep getting burned every year, how, how do you help those recover? Because even if you have interventions, they're just going to get destroyed the following fire. Um, well, I guess it does depend a bit on threat management and if you are able to control the fires um, in some other way. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, it is it is a significant problem. And I think there are a lot of fire ecologists and I'm not one of those. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I'm a seed ecologist. So, yeah. um, you know, I study the effects of fire on seeds. Um, so really in terms of managing threats, um, that's really something for, yeah, fire ecologists to help yeah. out land managers to be able to do that and mm -hmm. try and understand, better understanding of fire intervals, um, I think yeah. is certainly something that's really important so that people really know you know what and um what ideal fire intervals might look like um because yes yeah, some ecosystems might be adapted to burning every year um and some not so much right okay and so for the restoration of these areas it's going to be a bit different for the ones for the mine sites where do they source like all the seed to cover that much ground if they needed to actually do a restoration yeah, look, seed sourcing is a massive issue. Um, ANPC just put out a publication recently. Um, uh, it was a seed survey. And, yeah, one of the issues is seed supply. Like, um, you know, some some people just can't get enough seed and then they can't get enough seed of the species that they want. Um, so a lot of seed is sourced through wild collection, particularly in Australia. Um, a lot of seed is sourced through wild collection. And that can be really difficult because a lot of our ecosystems are already under stress. You know, like we've said, they might have frequent fires, they might mm -hmm. have been degraded through grazing. Um, and so they're kind of, they're already under stress. Um, and also a lot of clearing has occurred. And in some places there just really aren't that many remnant populations to collect from. 
or perhaps they might be in national parks or, you know, places where um, people can't um, or have trouble getting permits to go and collect. So, yeah, it is really difficult to source the volumes of seed required for landscape mm -hmm. scale restoration. Um, one of the ideas that people are having is to use seed production areas. Um, so you can go and collect seed from the wild and then grow it under kind of crop conditions. Um, so seed production areas are a way of, I guess, bulking up um, seed to then be able to use in restoration. So that's one option. Um, another option mm -hmm. is just to get smarter about using seed. So instead of using huge volumes of seed, um, if you store it better, if you are able to pre-treat it perhaps, um, if you understand um, what the limitations are for recruitment in these ecosystems, then you might be able to use less seed um, because you might have a higher proportion of those seed germinating. So yeah, a lot of research and field trials are needed to try and optimise seed use in the field, um, optimise storage conditions so you're not losing seed before you even plant it. Um, so, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, look, scale of seed supply is a huge issue and there are a lot of um, different areas in which the processes can be improved um, to try and address that. Okay. So how much of, like, because, well, I guess there's a lot of stuff that carries between different areas. Is a lot of the research very specific to Australian flora or is quite a lot of it still quite... Um, I guess, transferable between other ecosystems? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so there are a lot of general principles that the global uh, restoration community is grappling with. Um, so, for example, like how do you define a reference ecosystem? Um, a lot of these big questions um, people around the world are trying to ask. So, you know, how do you go out and um, define you know, the targets for restoration, which species do you want to plant and, and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of those general principles are actually um, sort of talked about internationally. Um, for seed ecology, there's also a lot of international literature. So, for example, um, different things that are able to, you know, what seeds need to germinate, what different types of things will stimulate seed germination. A lot of those uh, can be um, gleaned from the international literature or talking to people overseas. Um, so in some respects, that's great. You know, we're part of this kind of global community of researchers and practitioners who are trying to solve these problems. Um, but then at a national and then also at a local level, we also have to experimentally determine those um, on our species. So um, while we can glean a lot of the um, general concepts from um, the international literature and talking to international colleagues, um, yeah, then you still have to do the work um, in the ecosystems and on our species to make sure that, you know, um, uh, it's tailored to our needs, I guess. Okay. And with how diverse the Australian flora is, does that make it more difficult or less difficult to get that kind of level of detail? You need? Oh, look, I think it, I think it makes it really difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah. Often when I was doing seed germination experiments, I'd be the first person ever to work on that particular species. Um, and there are just so many species, you know, in WA alone, let alone the whole of Australia that, you know, um, it, it, it is really challenging um, because we do have quite a big flora. Um, so yes, I, I think that is quite difficult. Um, so, but, you know, 
with that challenge, it also makes it really interesting because even like as an honor student, you can actually work on something nobody's worked on before. So, you know, there's great opportunities for doing really interesting um, science and also doing really great practice as well in the field um, because, you know, um, our flora is unique and beautiful. So, um, yeah. That's brilliant. So how long is it going to take for, to put together this new edition of the Flora Bank Guidelines? Um, well, it's about a two-year project. So mm -hmm. I started in October. So we're partway through drafting at the moment. We've got all of the, the modules drafted. Uh, we've got about 50 people from around Australia, um, from science and practice, government, universities. Um, so they're representing the, uh, the whole spectrum of the people involved in the seed industry. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, they've been amazing in contributing their time and their knowledge for this project. So uh, the next step is um, to yeah, refine all the drafts and get it published. And then after that, we're going to disseminate the information through workshops as well. So um, hopefully we'll have a national workshop and, and some state and local workshops as well to, to um, tell people about what's new um, and often, you know, people are really amazing specialists in their field. Um, and it's great that the Flora Bank guidelines are able to tell people about the whole seed industry. And so people are able to learn about other aspects of the industry that they might not already be involved in. So, yeah, hopefully um, when we're allowed to run workshops and do interstate <laughs> travel, um, we will be able to um, kind of communicate that and educate people, but not just um, educate them, I think, Sometimes the workshops are really great because they bring people together and it's often just those conversations over morning tea or over lunch and people network and meet each other. You know, you yeah. get a whole bunch of like-minded people in the same room and, you know, organically all of those kind of conversations um, start to arise. And um, so I think um, that'll be really good part of the project as well is, is that kind of um, that networking opportunity mm. as well. Yeah, and because there's so many areas that it touches, it's just people from everywhere doing all sorts of things in the general sort of area. That's and right. And they're all doing different work. Yeah. Well, I think it's just a great opportunity, really, to be able to kind of give back to the community, both the um, threatened species community with, through the translocation guidelines and the seed community, um, and then supporting the restoration community. So everybody who's doing restoration, whether that's, you know, tree planting or whether that's, you know, on their their local their local land um, and volunteers as well. So yeah, I really I really enjoy being able to communicate new information and and give back. Um, but also I'm learning a lot as well because <laughs> you know there's 50 specialists and they all have different um, different areas of expertise and different experience to me and they come from different parts of the country. So it's been great to learn from them. Um, I'm absorbing a lot of knowledge um, as yeah. well. So, yeah, it's just a really great project to be involved in. So many opportunities for mm. you know, just growing your knowledge in other areas yeah. that you wouldn't yeah, normally right. be touching. Have you encountered any work that's been incorporated into either this or the translocation guidelines where it hasn't been formally academically researched, but it's just anecdotal or just from experience from the people working on the ground doing the work? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, there's lots of different ways in which people can communicate um, their knowledge. Um, and so obviously the academic literature is just one of those things. So what we did for the translocation guidelines is we actually invited a whole lot of people to write case studies. 
and we publish them in APC, which is the Bulletin for the Australian Network for Plant Conservation. So we had people who were local landowners, volunteer groups and things like that submitting case studies and they just wrote about what they did and what they found. And so that was a great way for them to be able to share their knowledge um, as well as, you know, just referencing things from the literature. So, um, yeah, that's... Um, and we're also inviting that for the Flora Bank guidelines. If people want to write a case study, then we're able to reference that within the Flora Bank guidelines as well. And often we get people to present case studies at workshops as well. And that's really good because they are able to talk about their current research and don't necessarily have to wait until the whole lot is published. Or they can present an experimental design or a field trial and say, this is our plans for our field trial. You know, does anybody want to provide any comments? So. Um, I think, yeah, workshops as well are really great for communicating information, um, uh, particularly, yeah, before um, it's, um, you know, because sometimes the lag time is quite long to wait for things to come out in the literature. So, yeah. We might start wrapping up this part and I guess we can start talking about some of the extra questions that I've mentioned to you. Oh, yeah, sure. So, yeah. So what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? Well, I guess we've already talked about singing. Um, that's yeah. kind of um, unrelated. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I was in a choir for a long time and now I'm involved. Well, I've, I've been also involved in the Royal School of Church Music for a long time since I was a little kid. Um, and, yeah, the band that I'm involved in, I'm not sure how long I've been in that now. It's probably at least 10 years. Um, so, yeah, definitely music is a huge part of my life and, and just really enriching. And I've met so many lovely people through it as well. It's great to be part of the music community in Perth. Um, um, other things that I like to do, I mean, I like to garden a lot um, <laughs> and it's kind of related. I mean, I do have a degree in horticulture, but, um, yeah, I didn't specialise in vegetable crops. So, <laughs> um, um, and then, uh, yeah, recently I've started to get into house plants and tropical plants and, I kind of, I actually didn't really learn much about them at uni either, so um, had to teach myself a lot about that. And I like propagating stuff, so, you know, <laughs> propagate natives, I propagate tropical plants and house plants, and succulents as well has been a recent obsession as well. Um, so, yeah, I've, um, yeah, got a, got a lot of plants in my garden to keep me busy. There's always something to do. Um, teaching my kids a lot about plants as well, which has been really fun and also really re rewarding as well to be able to just do simple things like plant sunflower seeds and show the kids the whole life cycle of a sunflower within a couple of months and, you know, watching them barefoot in the veggie patch, like just eating bok choy straight from the <laughs> veggie patch. So, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I get a lot of joy out of that as well, um, just being able to watch things grow and be able to eat what I grow and sit under the shade of trees that I've grown. Um, yeah, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that as well. Yes, so, definitely yeah. pretty satisfying being able to grow yeah. things in your garden that you can eat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. yeah. I certainly am nowhere near self-sufficient, but, you know, it, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it supplements what we buy. So yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's good that your kids are getting so into it. Like my daughter was watching us in the garden and she was like, what are you doing? Like, well, we're planting things and then we're going to be able to eat them later. And she's like, all right. And I, our snow peas started sp uh, sprouting. So we've, I've got her, so one of the snow peas, gave it to her and she looked at it and she said, what is it? I went, so it's a snow pea. It's, it's crunchy. You can eat it. It's sweet. And she just took a bite, looked at me skeptically and went, it's too crunchy. And then walked away. <laughs> so 
Well, Clearly yeah, my, not daughter, my daughter eats most things from our garden, um, but she tried radishes the other day and she was pretty excited about that because oh, she'd never nice. had a radish straight from the garden before. And then she was just the look on her face. She was like, no. I was like, okay, no, we this found the one thing that you don't like. Um, she'll eat bok choy and kale, but, um, yeah, the radishes, she was like, mm, no. <laughs> Too peppery? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. she'll know. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Next one. Which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Um, I read a lot at school uh, when I was a kid, um, a lot. Um, so I just I don't really have a particular book that holds strong memories, but I did read a lot of science fiction, I guess a lot of dystopian fiction as well. So I think probably John Wyndham is one of the authors that I remember reading a lot of and George Orwell and, and authors like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know if um, – it's funny because often people think of scientists as non-creatives and maybe yeah. people don't read fiction, but it's just totally not the case. Um, but maybe that's a bit of a crossover, is that, yeah, I used to read a lot of science fiction. Um, <laughs> now, not so much because I read a lot of science. Uh, so when I read yeah. fiction, uh, <laughs> it's, real. it's quite, it's it's quite different. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So I'm still reading a lot, um, but, yeah. Um, but I think it was really good to um, read a lot when I was a kid. I think also one of the misconceptions I had about being a scientist was that I would never have to write. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I was really wrong. That's all lies. Um, It's all lies. I thought, oh, yeah, you just write up, you know, like lab reports because that's all we used to do in science was just write lab reports. I was like, oh, I can just write lab reports. Just fill in Um, fields, that's it. That's right. All you have to do is just write dot points and draw a graph and, um, yeah. (laughs) was really wrong so I think yeah it's really lucky that I love reading um because yeah now I have to read a lot for work and I write a lot as well so you know I'm writing books I'm writing for websites I'm writing for social media um I'm you know writing a lot of emails so communicating directly with people and lots and lots of people across Australia and around the world so I think um yeah, it seems like reading is kind of fiction is unrelated to science, but <laughs> it is. Um, also, I think um, one of the interesting things about scientific publications is people think that, you know, maybe they could be a bit dry and they're like, I just used to think they were lab reports, but then somebody once said, oh, no, actually a scientific paper is a story. You need to tell a story. Um, you need yeah. to be able to engage the reader and you need to take them through from the familiar to the unfamiliar. Um, and so... Yeah, I guess, you know, obviously writing scientific literature is is different to fiction, but it, it is similar in a way in that's that yeah, you're still telling a narrative. The story, that's right, and you're communicating. Um and so I think, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it's a good way of looking at it because nobody thinks about writing papers as being particularly interesting as a part of what they have to do. It's an obligation. Yes, but, I mean some people yeah. some people spend, you know, their Friday nights writing papers or their Sunday mornings in bed writing papers. <laughs> I'm usually disrupted by children at that time. So, yes, um, but, um, but yeah, other people do, you know, initially perhaps think of it as, um, you know, something that's formulaic, but in actual fact, yeah, it's a story. Yeah, it's great. Need to think about that more. (laughs) And lastly, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? Um, Well, I guess... Um, well, firstly, for, 
for high school students. Like I, I didn't actually know that my job existed when I was in high school. I mean, I, I think I did, yeah, I did year 10 work experience at a mine site and I did do some mine res- restoration. So I kind of knew about this like mine rehab um, and I just assumed that you studied environmental science and then you did mine rehab. Um, I didn't know what seed biology was. I didn't know you could study seeds at university. I didn't know you could do a PhD in seeds. I didn't know that you could travel around the world and go and talk at conferences and visit other universities and seed banks and things like that. So um, I think keeping an open mind um, and just following what you're passionate about and not thinking about things in terms of, you know, what's your favourite subject? Like people used to ask that all the time. School, yeah, what's your favourite subject? It's, like, it's quite an awful it's question. Really, like it doesn't it's really help. <laughs> was, no, I mean, you know, one of my favourite subjects was French, like, and I certainly didn't study that at uni, although I have been to France. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's quite it's quite useless. Um, so I think the better question to ask yourself and also to ask others, like don't annoy high school students, be like, oh, who's your favourite teacher? It's like, what are you passionate about? Like, what are you interested in? Is it animals? Is it the human body? You know, is it the weather? Like, you know, it's like stuff for me and for me it was plants. I just really like watching plants grow and I find them really interesting. Um, I think they're really beautiful and um, I just want to learn more about them and I want to go to places where I get to see plants. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's that's what I find really interesting. And I like talking to people about plants and I like writing about them and reading about them. So I think um, for high school students, definitely, like, find your passion, find what it is you're interested in and, and go and just explore that. Um, you know, I'm also passionate about music and I have no illusions that I'm going to ever get paid to be a singer. So, you know, I, get, I still get to do it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, find, find out what you're passionate about and then hopefully if you're good at it, somebody might pay you to do it. Um, and I think also um, don't stress about what uni course you, cho- you choose because, yeah, really interestingly, the people who did horticulture and viticulture with me have gone into really diverse careers. So a lot of us have studied, um, you know, essentially the same subjects, but we've gone in all different directions. Um, and... Uh, Interestingly, people who've done really different degrees to me have ended up in a really similar job to me. So I think um, while it's important to choose a course, whether that's at uni or at TAFE or whatever, um, you know, that's important, but it's not like the the be-all and end-all. Um, yeah, it's not going to be the thing that dictates where you end up. That's right. I mean, unless you're doing a career that leads into, um, you know, a, a job like, you know, um, being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer where, you know, you, you do have to go, you know, do a specific degree to get a specific job, the type of jobs that I've had, um, you know, there's there's a diversity of different degrees that you, you could choose um, to get into that. So, you know, don't stress about that. Um, yeah, just follow what you're interested in and, and what you're good at and um, see where it takes you. That's cool. That's great advice. And side note, when you were in London, did you end up going to the Eden Project? I have been to the Eden Project. Um, yeah. I did go. I'm not sure if it was built the year that I lived there. Um, but, yeah, I went um, to the Eden Project. We took um, our baby son when, when he was little. He's now yeah. six. Um, but, yeah, when he was about four and a half months old, for some reason, <laughs> decided to go to London. Um, my dad's from London, so we went to visit our family yeah. there. Um, and we did, we went to the Eden Project. So that was really cool. Um, so the Eden Project, for those who don't know, is like 
Um, it's actually built in a disused coal mine, which is kind of really interesting for somebody who's got a background in mining restoration. <laughs> um, it's a really expensive way of um, yeah. putting plants back into an old mine. <laughs> um, and basically they've built these climate-controlled domes. So they've got a dome for tropical flora. They've got a dome for Mediterranean flora, which was really cool to go and see, yes. you know, Australian plants in um, in the UK in an old mm-hmm. coal, coal mine. Um, so yeah, I thought it was really interesting. It's really well laid out. It's really creative. Um, I guess, you know, gardening, um, and plants is a, you know, it's part science and it's part arts Uh, because it's, you know, it's creative and, um, and, you know, they, um, you know, they just have really beautiful gardens and really interesting plants and also a lot of, um, interesting science to learn about different plants and different ecosystems. So yes, I have been there, but, um, not during my gap year. (laughs) Yeah, so I went myself when they, I think they still only had two out of the three domes. Oh, wow. Mm. So it was really early on and all of the plants, it was still fairly new, but some of the larger domes were like, yeah, I think the large dome, I think was the arid dome. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, quite well established. It was like, yep, seen that, know that one. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was really good to see and I would love to go back again to see, now, see it now it's properly established. Yeah, I think West Australians, we often take our flora for granted, um, don't realise that actually people around the world, you know, come here or go to the Eden Project to see our amazing plants. So, yeah. Yeah. It's exotic for everyone else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for that. That has been really interesting. And, yeah, definitely still feels like we need another session to cover so much of the other stuff that you've been talking about. Um, but if anybody else would like to learn more about what Lucy does and maybe reach out to Lucy, uh, you can find her on Twitter at Lucy underscore commander um, and on LinkedIn, which I'll be providing in the show notes, as well as through the AMPC site. So that's www.ampc.asn.au. So Lucy, thanks so much for this. This has been amazing. And yeah, I've been well learned today. <laughs> so thanks so much for that. No problems. I'm glad you found it interesting. Thanks. Yeah, great. Thank you. As Lucy mentioned, Australian ecosystems are so diverse and there is a lot of work that goes into the conservation and restoration of these areas, and not just due to urban development and mining and bushfires. Honestly, I'm now kind of curious about fire ecology as well as the inclusion of wild relatives of food crops into the global seed vaults. Nerdy? Yes. Fascinating? Also yes. To learn more about Lucy and what we discussed on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. If you enjoy this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.